It's time for Test Tube Thursday, and in for Dan Riskin, who, as you know, is in the Galapagos Islands measuring the beaks of um, finches. Science Sam is here. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Can we start with the one thing that is preoccupying me and probably everybody else these days? Because I just saw episode three of The Last of Us. And <laughs> this is a show that is based on the idea that a fungus could start growing inside of people and then it would make them go zombie. Is that actually possible? Is this yet another scenario I have to start worrying about? Well, let's back up here. Let's start. The fungus that this show uh, and the video game were based off of is a type of fungus that can do that kind of thing to ants. And uh, it's been shown that in ants, it will start to infect them. Its goal here is it wants to grow more of itself and spread. And so it will take over these ants and make them do all sorts of things they normally wouldn't do, essentially turning them into zombie ants get them to move to more favorable climates where the fungus will grow better and eventually lead them to a place far from their typical nest and just leave them exactly where the fungus wants to be to grow, let's say, on a leaf, leaving the zombie ant waiting there to die. Uh, so this happens in ants. But this fungus has evolved for millions of years to specialize in infecting its specific or preferred zombie host of insect. So it's not likely that it's just going to jump from an insect to humans out of nowhere like it does, let's say, in the show. Uh, so I'm not worried about this particular fungus right now, but the WHO has identified 19 different fungi that it thinks are a significant worry. So it's not like we shouldn't care about fungi at all. I'm just not worried about this particular zombie type of fungus for us. Super. Okay. Then I will start worrying about it, I think. Because honestly, Sam, <laughs> If I had to choose between uh, the fungi or fungus mm -hmm. zombies and conventional zombies, I'd go with the old-fashioned conventional biting you, eating your brain zombies. Oh. And if you want to start your morning in an intense way, Google cordyceps ant or just Google like zombie ant and you will see some wild pictures. Super. Okay. I want to make an appointment <laughs> for that as soon as you get a coffee break. Okay. So people who don't exist are more real in appearance than actual people the study has found. So I'm guessing this is using computers to create a fake face and then they show them to people and people like them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's what they did. It's a special type of uh, algorithm that they're using that uses two deep neural networks set against each other competing to produce the most realistic images. And, um, and yeah, mm -hmm. and, and people yeah, yeah, I'll let you go. prefer them, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so that was that was the interesting thing is uh, people were more likely to perceive the computer generated faces as real. And an interesting thing they found was that the less attractive faces were more likely to be thought of as real. Um, and as soon as they thought something was was real, whether or not it was, they were more likely to trust information from it. So this is interesting here. So all people are looking for is like, do I think this face is real? And then they're more likely to trust it. Often if it was less attractive, they thought it seemed more realistic because that's how they're picturing a typical face. But as soon as participants were told that there were some fakes in there, their trust overall got low. And that was really interesting to me because it just made me think of how we operate already online. We know there are fake troll accounts and bots, bot accounts, and it just makes you think like, how is that going to change the way we receive information? The more and more we become aware that there could be fakes out there and the the harder it becomes to discern what's what's real and what's computer generated. No small number of people 
people have offered that living with a teenager is kind of like living with a chimpanzee, <laughs> and apparently new research suggests that maybe it is. <laughs> this this one made me laugh. Uh, for the record, you know their their biggest finding here was that teen chimps and humans were more risk seeking and impatient than adults, uh, and that that kind of makes sense. That feels realistic. I remember being super impatient. I still am. What they did here is there uh, were about forty chimps born in the wild uh, living in a sanctuary in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. They had two big experiments. The one that I really liked was they knew that chimps don't really like cucumbers. They feel all right about peanuts and they love bananas. So they said, you can take this container that will always have peanuts, or you can choose this container that sometimes has a cucumber that you don't like, or sometimes has a banana that you love. So what do you go for? Do you go for the thing that you feel lukewarm about, the peanuts, but it's guaranteed, or do you take the risk to either get something you love or hate? Now, the teen chimps were more likely to take the risk and go for the the cucumber or banana container. They're like, I might get a cucumber that I hate or I might get something I love. Uh, whereas adults, they kind of, the adult chimps, they're like, I'm just going to go for the meh because it's guaranteed. <laughs> so that you saw that more risk-taking behavior in the teens. Um, and, and that was the thing that we saw is similar to, we know that human teens are more likely to take those types of risks. They have some parts of their brains that are still developing in, in humans. Um, this front part of the brain behind your forehead, that really helps you make dis complex decisions. And we know that in humans, that part of the brain is still developing into your 20s. So that kind of risk-taking behavior is not surprising. And this study just showed it in teen chimps, which was pretty cool. No, okay, so it's not that you know teenagers are throwing their own feces. Um, <laughs> no. Time for one more story, and that would be a company that's trying to bring back <laughs> extinct animals. And you have to wonder if they, don't they watch movies? <laughs> right? Like, are you going for Jurassic Park here? It kind of seems like it. Um, you've heard them say dead as a, you've heard people say dead as a dodo. And that's the latest announcement that this company made. They've, they've previously said, let's bring the mammoth, the woolly mammoth back. And now they're going for the dodo bird. And that's really interesting because it's difficult to bring back a bird because the way that you have to do it uses the eggs and I'm sorry if you're eating eggs for breakfast right now, but doing these types of experiments in bird eggs is a whole different ball game than it is doing it with uh, eggs of mammals. Um, so they're going for the dodo. They There's been lots of work leading up to this where they've found um, certain bits of DNA uh, from past samples. And now they, a, few, a year or so ago, they reconstructed the dodo's entire genome. So they think they have the genetic code to do it. And and now they're trying to go to the next step, but you, this isn't going to happen in the next like year or something. It's it's going to take several years, uh, and we'll see if they're successful. Sam, thanks a lot. Good to have you this morning. Thanks for having me. That is Science Sam. She's actually better known as Samantha Yamin, a PhD neuroscientist and a science communicator, as you heard this morning.